So I'm just going to bring the reading before Matt comes and um, speaks to us. So if you want to follow it along, it's Matthew 21, uh, verse 1 to 17. So I'll just give you a moment to get your Bibles out, your apps out, all other forms of the Bible. Matthew 21, 1 to 17. The triumphal entry. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They bought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus at the temple. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying they asked? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you, have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Over to you, Matt. Let's give it a big cheer. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much, Hattie, for that reading. Uh, good evening if you're watching online as well. It's great to have you with us. Um, we are at uh, Palm Sunday. Happy Palm Sunday to you. And uh, hope you're doing well. <laughs> Thank you very much. And um, this is uh, a really exciting Sunday. And I'm really excited to be speaking to you tonight. This is the first day of the last week of Jesus' life on earth. The first day of the last week of his life on earth. And as such, I think this is probably the first day of the most important week in history. Today is Palm Sunday, and we remember today the arrival, the triumphant entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. This is the beginning of his last week, where, which ends, uh, spoiler alert, with the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus on Good Friday, and then the silence of Holy Saturday, followed by the resurrection, the to new life of Jesus this time next week. So that's the sort of picture of the whole week. And this is the first day of the week. And um, when I was a child, um, I grew up and I had one of those video players. Do you remember those video? You may not remember video players. I was a ch sort of child of the 90s. And um, uh, one of the things I did at this time of year, pretty much every year, was to go onto the shelf of my parents' house and to get a video from the video shelf. This is, <laughs> this is how old I am. 
And the video was called Jesus of Nazareth. And it was a six-hour video, probably, I think, six, probably three videos, of, in fact, of a, like a dramatic, dramatized version of Jesus' life. Um, for those of you who've watched The Chosen on Amazon Prime or YouTube, it's like the, the Chosen, but from the 80s, okay? In fact, it was probably late 70s, and uh, it was very, very popular. Anyway, it was very popular to me because every, time, every year, at this time of year, I would get the video, and I'd put it in my video VHS player and play it. And I was captivated by seeing Jesus on my TV and captivated by the story of Easter. And I would watch it with sort of fascination. And I would watch this sort of six-hour uh, dramatic uh, acted-out life of Jesus with sort of fascination and captivation. And um, my parents don't throw anything away. They, they are sort of, they're quite, um, they hold on to these things. And I, I'm going back to my parents' house next week. I'm looking forward to getting that video. And um, I don't think they've got a VHS player. Well, they might actually. Uh, but I'm hoping to watch that again at some point um, or maybe find it on YouTube. Anyway, the reason I tell you that is whether or not the Easter story is uh, a distant memory from your childhood or whether it's something that is really recent to you and you've recently discovered it, my prayer tonight and my prayer for you for the whole week of this Holy Week is that you would be captivated and fascinated by the Easter story, which starts today and goes on for the whole week. Um, um, or maybe, maybe Easter for you is a sort of childhood memory from your, uh, from your childhood days, from assemblies, from RE lessons. I pray that, that maybe this week it would come to life in a new way. And so much happens in the last week of Jesus' life. So much happens, and uh, Palm Sunday is covered in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And scholars say that when something's covered in all four Gospels, it must be really important, really significant, so we must pay attention to it. But interestingly, Palm Sunday, this whole um, arrival of Jesus that we've just read from Matthew's Gospel, features in chapter 12 of, of John, uh, 12 or 20 of John's Gospel. It features in Mark chapter 11 of 16, Luke chapter 19 of 24 chapters, and Matthew 21, as we've just read, of 28. In other words, so much of what the Gospels say about Jesus happens after this. So, so much of the, of the Gospel messages is uh, to do with Jesus' last week on earth. And so, we're going to look at Matthew's account tonight. Matthew 21, verse 117. And here in the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem, so many uh, themes are being brought together. You've got the theme of Jesus' personal story, his kingdom, his message, his mission. You've got the dynamics between the 12 disciples, those who followed Jesus around for three years. You've got the hope of the nation of Israel looking for a king. You've got the political situation in Jerusalem with the Romans occupying them, uh, oppressing them, telling them what to do, what they can and can't do. You've got the spiritual activity in the temple of Jerusalem. And this start of the week, the last week of Jesus, is the culmination of three years of his ministry. And these things and these themes are suddenly thrown together in the climax of this last week. I don't know if you've ever uh, planned an arrival yourself, whether you've been to a party in a fancy dress costume, or whether you've had a, a surprise party that you've thrown for someone, or maybe you've been uh, the lucky recipient of a surprise party, and you've planned your arrival, and you've planned how you're going to arrive to this and make a sort of entrance and a statement. Um, I don't know if you've ever, ever, ever had that 
And my wife was here this morning, and I, I said, I've never had a surprise party. It was, it, it was supposed to be, not supposed to be a hint, but she's going, I'm sorry, I haven't given you a surprise party. Anyway, there was one time when I decided for a New Year's party to go to this party as Buzz Lightyear. I don't quite know why. I don't remember sort of the occasion, but I thought, I'm going to make a statement and arrive as Buzz Lightyear to a New Year's Eve party. So I got my costume ready, helmet and everything. Um, I didn't suffocate in my glass ball. But I, um, I, I arrived at this party, and I had like a speaker in my back pocket, and I was like, I'm going to arrive to Buzz Lightyear. Trim, 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 and I was sort of chan prancing around this um, New Year's Eve party. Anyway, I'm not sure how well it went down or how memorable it was to other people. But um, tonight we're thinking about uh, a statement in an arrival. And we're going to look at two things tonight. We're going to look at, in this Palm Sunday story, what's going on. We're going to notice a bit more about what's going on in the story. And secondly, we're going to notice and look at what it means, what it meant then, what it means to us today. So what's going on? Let's look at the context of what's happened just before this arrival. The first thing to look at is the context. And before Jesus gets on a donkey and rides into Jerusalem, there is already a bit of a crisis brewing around him, about, around the people that he's around as well. Right before this incident, in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus and his followers are on a road, and two blind men, it says, come up to him, and they cry out to Jesus, son of David. In other words, they're crying out to their Messiah, the messianic king, the ultimate king, the final king of the world that they are looking for. Son of David, they say, have mercy on us. And Jesus looks at them and says, yes, you are healed. This is the first time that Jesus has been publicly claimed as the Messiah and the first time that Jesus has allowed it to happen. He's allowing it to happen, which means either he, is, uh, he has to triumph and claim this kingship and take this kingship, or by allowing it, he knows then that the authorities are going to get so furious with him that they're going to crush him and crush him because of what he said. So Jesus knows that this whole ministry, his whole life is coming to this point where um, it's like the sprint to the top. It's like the final part of his, uh, of his life and ministry. They're on their way to Jerusalem, the, the national center of worship. They're on their way to the Passover, which was the uh, celebration of the life of Israel, the freedom from captivity from, uh, with Moses in the, in the Old Testament. They're at the temple. And Jesus is openly starting to declare himself as king. So the first thing is that in the midst of this arrival, there is already crisis and tension. Words would have spread about that healing of the two blind men, about Jesus saying, yes, I am the son of David. Yes, I am the Messiah that you're looking for. And suddenly the crowd would have uh, spread that news and a crisis would have been brewing. Secondly, Jesus arranges and orchestrates this entry carefully. If you look back at Matthew chapter 21, six verses is given to Jesus arranging all the details of this entry. I'd always pictured, I don't know about you, this, uh, the use of a donkey. Uh, I, I never really thought it was that intentional. I just thought well, he must have just chosen a donkey and thought, oh, look, there's, there's an animal. I'm going to sit on that and ride that. Maybe the disciples must have said, oh, just, just ride that or give that a go, or it was forced on him. But Jesus here is 100% uh, 
in control of what's going on, and he arranges it himself. The passage says that um, Jesus sends disciples to Bethphage. This was a small village just outside of Jerusalem that Jesus would have been well known in. He would have been well known because it was the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Jesus knew the people of this village intimately. They would have seen him raise Lazarus from the dead not long before. They knew about his glory. They knew about his power. They knew about his reputation. So suddenly when two disciples arrive at this village and say, Jesus of Nazareth needs a donkey and he's going to ride it. The Lord needs it. They would have thought, what's going on? What's, what's happening? Why does, what's Jesus doing with this donkey? And so that again, the crowd would have started talking in Bethphage. Probably the whole village would have come to see what was going on, why these disciples had come to get this donkey. So Jesus, I think, not only sent for the donkey, but he sent for the crowd as well, and the crowd followed. Jesus is in total control, and he's orchestrating this arrival. He's making sure that he comes into Jerusalem, being declared as loudly as possible as the king. Confronting Jerusalem, confronting the leaders of Jerusalem with claims of his kingship. And then thirdly, um, the context here. Notice what's going on. The choice of the steed. It's a donkey. It's a donkey. It's good to put ourselves here in the shoes of the disciples. The disciples are probably uh, a little bit confused about what's going on. They, they were hoping for uh, Jesus maybe to jump on a, a huge great horse like a Roman uh, officer and say, I'm going to king. I'm going to destroy the Romans. We're going to march into Jerusalem. And yet he chooses a donkey. They were wanting him to say, right, we're going to take back Jerusalem. I've seen Jesus, what you can do. You can raise the dead. You can heal uh, the sick. Let's, let's, smash up, let's smash these Romans out of Jerusalem. Take back uh, what is rightfully ours. But Jesus, as he has done throughout many of his uh, teachings and his ministry, is very uh, elusive and enigmatic with what's going on. He's making these statements that aren't quite what they expected. And instead of getting a war horse to ride on as a victorious general, what is he doing? He's choosing the transport of a servant, a donkey. You see, servants ride donkeys. Kings are the ones that normally ride horses, but servants ride donkeys. It's not the steed of a king. It's the steed of a servant. And you can imagine the disciples saying, yes, we're going to march in Jerusalem. But on a donkey, what? No, please, come on, Jesus. Let's get, let's get, your, get your transport right. It doesn't look right. It's sending mixed messages. So we've noticed those three things that are going on. What does this all mean? What does it mean? Well, I'd love us to look a little bit more deeply at verse 5. And there's a striking verse in the middle of this passage which says this. It's going to come up on the screens. Verse 5 says this. See, your king comes to you gentle. See, your king comes to you gentle. And there are three things here I want us to learn tonight. Three things I'd love us to consider at the beginning of this week. That Jesus, the kingship of Christ, is confrontational, it's paradoxical, and it is transformational. Three uh, big words on a Sunday night. So what do I mean by these things? 
your king. Firstly, see your king is confrontational. It makes us stop and think, your king, your king, your king. Jesus is forcing the issue. He's forcing us to think, is, is he my king? Is, is Jesus my king? The, um, the writer Tim Keller, who's written loads and loads of books, he's a Christian author and writer and theologian. Tim Keller says this, Jesus Christ is tremendously humble, but not at all modest. Jesus showed us incredible humility and compassion and tenderness, sensitivity, but he's not modest. When dealing with others, he is humble. But when dealing with himself, he is not modest. He calls the temple my house. He said, this is my house. Your king. I am your king. This is my house. His kingship is apparent. He makes no um, secret of it. And what he's saying when he rides into Jerusalem, he's, he's, he's being confrontational. He's saying, either you're going to have to crown me as king, or if you don't like it, you're going to have to kill me. And we know that that's what happens on Friday. The crowd are crowning him with uh, their shouts of Hosanna. But as we know, the end of the story from, from Good Friday, the crowd then turn by Friday and they're shouting, crucify him. Either he's a lunatic, as some people say, or he is who he says he is. And I think when we turn to Jesus, we can often uh, ask Jesus and turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, be my peace and be my comfort. And that's all well and good, but Jesus says, I can be more than that. I can be your shepherd. I can be your brother. I can be your friend. I can be your guide. I can be your savior. But I won't be any of these things unless I am your king. Either I'm your king or I'm nothing. I want all of you or I want none of you. So in our hearts, we are confronted with this message. Jesus says, behold, your king is coming. It sounds quite full-onic, sounds quite extreme, but I think Jesus wants us to consider these words. I'm not your savior, I'm not your savior unless I'm your king. I'm not your helper unless I'm your king. I'm not your brother unless I'm your king. Crown me or kill me is what he's saying to the crowd. He confronts us with that message. Secondly, the paradoxical nature. Your king comes gentle, not in power and strength and, you know, awesome you're on a horse, you're incredible, you're a soldier, you're a victorious soldier. Your king comes gentle on a donkey. So we come back then to this message, this issue of the donkey. I used to think that Jesus, as a child, I used to think that Jesus chose a donkey because his mum had a donkey to ride to Bethlehem on. I, some, for some reason, I just thought, well, his mum had a donkey and she rode to Bethlehem, therefore he had a donkey and he rode to Jerusalem. And it was like the sort of family car or something. And I just... I don't, know why, I don't know why I thought that as a kid, but I just thought donkeys were Jesus' family car. Anyway, and, uh, but there's far more significance to it than that. I don't know if you've ever sat on a donkey or ever rode a donkey. Uh, I went to Be uh, Western Supermare not long ago, and um, the kids sat on a donkey really well. Daisy, Doris, whatever they were, the other ones. And um, I thought, 
I'm not, I'm not going to try because the donkey wasn't much smaller than, much bigger than me. Uh, and so I can imagine that as a grown adult man, a donkey ride is not much fun. And what we, what we learn from in this passage is that Jesus isn't just riding uh, a grown donkey. He's riding almost like a, a small donkey. It was a sort of parody. He was um, sort of making a parody of the Roman arrivals where they would march in victorious to, to Jerusalem and to cities that they conquered. He was uh, turning this whole thing of a triumphant entry on its head in a paradoxical way. And Matthew points out that there are prophecies in the Old Testament that say when the son of David, the messianic king, would come, that he would be riding on a donkey. This passage here is quoting Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And they say that in the future, a great king will come to put everything right, that all nations will bow to him. But what kind of king rides on a donkey? How, how would you win a battle on a donkey? How are you going to beat the oppressor? Well, by turning the whole situation on its head. Why is Jesus doing this? Because he is turning the message of his kingdom, the message of the gospel. He is showing what it is, that it is an upside-down kingdom. And the first thing he does as he enters Jerusalem is to go to the temple and to turn the tables of the temple from a place of marketplace and trading and selfishness and greed back into a place of prayer. What had been going on in the Jewish temple was corruption. It led to the religious authorities essentially taking advantage of God and taking advantage of other people with, with their money. So people in the, in the temple were using God rather than saying, God, use me. And Jesus was turning the tables physically in righteous anger. He was saying, my house, again, confrontational, my house shall be a place of prayer. But you have turned it into a den of thieves. And this reversal in the temple, this turning of the tables, is the reason for the, the reversal on the road. A donkey instead of a horse. Because this is the paradoxical gospel. You could say that sin is servants, that's us, you and me, putting ourselves in the place of the king. But salvation, the message of the gospel, is the king putting himself in the place of a servant. That's what's going on here. The king, Jesus, putting himself in the place of a servant. And when we look at the world today, when we look at what's going on in, in our lives and around the world, we see small examples and we see huge examples of this. People, servants, us humans, putting ourselves in the places of kings. Whether it's a, a terrifying quest for world domination, or it's stepping on someone else uh, metaphorically, hopefully not physically, to get to the next promotion at work. All of our um, fighting and our misery is caused by this sin where we elevate ourselves to king status. But the answer is not just saying, stop putting yourself in the place of the king. There's an even better solution here. Christianity, the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ on this Palm Sunday is that the king comes and puts himself in the place of the servant. And ultimately, that's what we see on Good Friday. The king dying in our place, 
promised for us. So Jesus is not just offering liberation from Rome, fighting the Roman soldiers, uh, freeing the temple from corruption, but also he's showing victory over death and overcoming that spiritual separation from God. And the truth is for us today, this week, this Easter, if this king, this gentle king, this humble king, this dying king, this servant king, the king that is higher than the heavens, but still chooses to come to us, to be with us, the king on this donkey, if this king comes into my life and comes into your life, he will turn us into gentle kings and paradoxical royalty. He sees us as saints. And the whole point of this message is that we're saved not through strength, but we're saved through weakness. It's not, I'm going to try really hard in my own strength to clean my life up and sort out uh, all the wrong stuff in my life. I'm going to try better. I'm going to try and save myself with my strength. The message is we're not saved by strength. We're saved through weakness and by grace. I remember when I first uh, sort of brought this into my life and took hold of this in my spiritual life, that I could never save myself. I could never uh, do the things that I needed to do in my own strength to save me. But only through grace, only by God's grace through faith that I'm saved. It brought a freedom to my life. It brought a release to my life. It brought a sense of um, forgiveness and a sense of joy and release that I'd never experienced. I was probably at uni at the time, and I was striving and struggling and trying to work really hard for my degree. And I had this sense that God was saying, don't work for your glory. Work for my glory. Do all that you're doing to bring me glory. I studied music at uni, so lots of my friends were trying to practice for hours and hours and hours to do concerts and gigs and shows and rehearsals and uh, to try and show off their own uh, abilities and, and be the best they could be and audition for all sorts of orchestras. And I had this sense that God was saying, don't use the gifts that I've given you for your glory. Use them for my glory. And that brought me so much freedom. So that's the paradoxical nature of the gospel. It wasn't what the disciples expected, but it was a paradoxical change that brought freedom. And then thirdly is this, transformational. He comes, it says, he comes. This is a, uh, a message in the present tense. Behold, your king comes, gentle. It doesn't say that he will come. It doesn't say he has come. It's saying he is coming. Jesus is coming and he is here with us. One of the most amazing bits of this passage is uh, what's the description of the palms, the Palm Sunday moment. It says that the, the crowd cut down palms uh, from the trees, they lay them down, they wave them. The crowd may not have known it, but again, they were fulfilling a bit of a prophecy in Psalm 95, where it says, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the trees of the woods sing for joy. And Isaiah 55, chapter 12, it says, You shall go out with joy, be led forth in peace. Then will the mountains and the hills break forth into singing, and the trees will clap their hands. In Luke's account of this moment, 
um, the Pharisees in the crowd shout out to Jesus and they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to shut up and not to say what they're saying. And he says, no, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the rocks will cry out. Now, I can't imagine a rock singing or speaking. And I think the sense of this is like the whole creation will recognize who Jesus is. I've always wondered when Jesus comes back and the whole earth sees the kingship of Jesus, if the trees are singing and the rocks are crying out, what on earth are the humans going to be doing? Um, it's going to be amazing um, if inanimate objects are speaking and singing and shouting. But what we're told here is that when Jesus comes back, we're going to see the completion of his kingship. This world will burst into life and be restored and redeemed for all that it's created and supposed to be. And on that day, the hills and the mountains will sing. So Palm Sunday is like this foretaste to the ultimate second coming of Jesus. That one day he will come again to reign and rule where heaven and earth uh, will be one. And he will be king of kings and lord of lords. So, behold, he comes. On one hand, his majesty and his might is infinite. No one can resist him. On the other hand, he comes gentle in a paradoxical nature. He takes the lepers and the blind and the lame and the children, the prostitutes, and he says, you are loved. You are accepted. You are free. You are forgiven from guilt and from shame. This is the king that brings transformation. And if we let him, if you let him confront you with his kingship and let him meet you as a gentle king, the one who saves you through weakness, then he will transform you. I believe he will transform you. He will bring you that freedom, that forgiveness that you're longing for. Freedom and forgiveness beyond your wildest dreams. Transform your life into what you were made to be. A child of God, forgiven, free, able to worship him and say, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means he saves. Thank you, God, for your, your freedom, your forgiveness, your salvation. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That when we are transformed, we will be able to worship him in freedom and forgiveness. So as we come to the start of this week, the start of this holy week, we know that we're part of that crowd. We can welcome Jesus in. We can welcome Jesus in with those same words. Today is Palm Sunday and this is our Palm Sunday. But we know that the same crowd that shouted Hosanna on the Sunday and crowned him with a, a metaphorical crown on the Sunday was the same crowd that then by Friday, as we maybe see on the screen, the same crowd then said, crucify him. The crown of glory turned into a crown of thorns. And I would encourage you this week to pick up the Bible, to read some of the gospel accounts of what happens between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. Get into the, the story and the narrative and all these intricacies. I'd start with Mark if you're going to do one of the four Gospels. And then come on Good Friday at 10.30. Explore the story. Get into the, the depth, the richness, the significance of it. Because I believe we have a moment in this season, in this week, to lay down 
our cloaks and lay down our crowns and recognize him as king again. And I believe that some, in some moments of our lives, we elevate ourselves to king-like status or queen-like status or royal-like status in our own efforts to, recognize, to get recognition and status and glory and satisfaction. We make crowns for ourselves. We seek uh, earthly recognition where really we are already chosen and loved. And this is a moment where we can come before God and say, Jesus, you are my true king. You are the king of my life. And I want to lay down my crown, lay down my cloak before you. So my question as we respond tonight is, what is that crown for you? Is it the pursuit of uh, earthly wealth? Is it the pursuit of a career? Is it pursuit of recognition from your boss or your employer or your parent? What is that crown where you're trying to prove yourself? You're trying to gain earthly status. Jesus says, I don't need any of that. I need you to lay yourself down. Recognize me as Lord. Recognize me as the one true king. There's an amazing moment in the book of Revelation, which is at the end of time when Jesus has uh, been raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. And Revelation is a picture of what's going on in heaven. And there's a brilliant bit in Revelation 4 where it says this, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. What is the crown this week that you are laying down before the King of Kings? Why don't we stand and we're going to respond tonight. Let's stand together. So we've got a chance to respond. I'd love to get the band up as well. We're going to worship in a second. But as I was um, thinking about this talk and writing it this week, I sat at my desk and I closed my eyes. And I said, God, would you show me a picture of what's going on here in this passage? And immediately I imagined myself in Jerusalem in the crowd. And I'd love us just to do that tonight. It's a way in which we can just picture ourselves in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So can I invite you to, to where, right where you are, just close your eyes. Don't uh, worry about what's going on around you. And I'd like you right now, in your imagination, to imagine yourself in Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. Historians think that there were probably over two million people arriving to Jerusalem. So there's people everywhere. So imagine a crowded scene. And then as you look in the crowd, there comes this man, an ordinary looking man, sat on a donkey. Gradually, more and more people, one by one, and then ten by ten, and hundreds by hundreds, start waving palm branches. They start laying down their coats, and they start saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. Here he comes. And 
And what I'd like you to do is to just be aware of where you are in the crowd. Are you right there at the front? Are you maybe in the middle being swept along? Or are you maybe a long way off and the scene of Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem is, is a long way off and distant? Wherever you are in that picture, whether you're, you feel close to Jesus, whether you feel like you've been maybe swept along or maybe you're feeling very distant, I have a real sense tonight that Jesus is wanting us, each and every one of us, to join in with that shout. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. got a sense as well that maybe for some people Jesus looks at you in the crowd and sort of gestures to say come on join in join in with what's going on and it was a reminder that we are all invited to declare the kingship of Christ Jesus, Jesus, the mighty king, the humble king, the servant king, in our hearts tonight, Jesus, we welcome you. Jesus, we're sorry when we've elevated ourselves to king-like status and put you aside. Tonight, Jesus, we want to recognize that you are the one true king. There is no one above you. There is no one higher or greater or more powerful. So tonight, Jesus, we enthrone you again. We say, Lord, at the beginning of this historic week, God, where you changed everything, we pray, God, that we would know your presence with us. We would know again the depth of your love for us. The extent of your grace for us. And that your invitation is for each and every one of us to say, you are my king. ourselves down before you again tonight. We lay down our cloaks, our statuses, our crowns, and we want to declare you again as Lord of our lives. So as we worship now, Jesus, we pray that you would be glorified in our midst. In your name we, we pray. Amen. Amen.